0: Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. What's up, everybody? Here we are. Uh, it feels good to be pod venturing again. I don't even know. We've recorded one or two here and there and some of the chaos that's ensued uh, in the world. So I don't even know when exactly this one's going to pop out. So I've already said, hey, it's crazy to be back. I apologize for being redundant, but it is. And it's good to be back. We're actually outside right now. And uh, the reason for being outside is because you can't beat this weather we're having, and this beautiful view in the background of this range set up at Isaiah Curtis's place. And he is the guest uh, with us here, tailgating with us right now. What we want to talk with him about, first off, is allowing him to introduce himself because this is his first podcast. uh, So that's super cool. Well, we also have Nick Loffenberg here as well. Nick Loffenberg joins us on pretty much all things kind of PRS, long range precision related. That is the topic at hand because Mark and I have embarked on the journey of building custom long range rifles. And uh, Mark Pat's his that he's built here, the idea that we wanted to do was to have somewhat of a, we'll call it, quote, entry-level build. Now, granted, all things are relative here, so uh, we went as far as entry-level being something that uh, was still probably, for some of you who, who haven't even considered long-range precision yet, you still might think that's a bit expensive, but again, all relative uh, here. We did that, that was my build, but then we really came down here to Missouri- to build marks, which is more of the uh, Gucci high-end, really precision. Nick and I built my gun, whereas we had Isaiah, the gunsmith, build Mark's gun. Uh, we got to see the process happen. That's some of what we'll talk about here today. And then we got to do some shooting here with both of our guns and compare them side by side today as well. And uh, it's been quite telling, pretty uh, pretty interesting stuff. So anyway, without further ado, though, we uh, we ought to let Isaiah introduce himself. Isaiah, uh, tell us, tell and, and the listeners. Who you are, what you do, how you got into what you do. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm Isaiah Curtis. I live in northeast Missouri, lived here my whole life. Started shooting, well, shot from, from the time I was a child, really, but uh, always grew up hunting, chasing stuff all over the Midwest pretty well, and really got into long-range shooting, truth be known, to kind of become more of an efficient hunter. Started shooting a lot or competitively, I guess, uh, probably about six years ago, started in the Missouri Steel, or Missouri Steel tactical series and just kind of went from there, started building my own rifles, just more or less out of self-defense, I guess, you know, <laughs> just uh, trying to do what I could and uh, something I really, really enjoyed doing. And so I took the plunge and decided I was going to do it full time. And that's that's what I'm doing today.
0: That's what you're doing now, yeah. So you have Curtis Custom Weapons, yes, sir. That is your shop, and uh, yeah, we got to witness uh, this process here and um, seeing it all happen, seeing you work in the lathe and uh, and all the craftsmanship and just consciousness that conscientiousness that has to go towards every single detail that goes into one of these rifles here uh, is pretty impressive. How did you learn? to do all this stuff it seems like it seems like around here you guys pretty much figure out how to do dang near everything yourself
1: you do i um, i had a very good mentor uh, not per se in rifle building but as far as a machinist goes i had one of the best mentors in the country daryl richardson Uh, he's taught me a lot about everything machine wise and as far as the rifle building goes you know what when I was doing my own it started off like a lot of other people's kind of trial and error ask a few questions to some people that I trusted along the way and just kind of went from there you know once you once you build a few of them and and then you start chasing you know, how can I make them more accurate how can how can this happen try to get everything all the stars aligned and much like everything else in life. Sometimes you try something and it didn't work out. Sometimes you try it and it worked great. So I just took the ones that worked great and went forward with them. And that's where we are today. Yeah.
0: What's uh, what's the first gun that you tinkered with as you kind of started getting uh, into gunsmithing?
1: A three hundred eight Winchester was the first rifle that I ever
0: built. Can't go wrong with that. I mean, very forgiving cartridge, right? It so you is. got that tons of ammo out there that you could toy around with after it was built. Yeah. And
1: uh, what was that like? Uh, it was, if I remember correctly, and it's been a while, but I think I had like 28 hours in the build, just paying attention to because every single— because I would put it together and I'd talk myself out of it being together correctly, <laughs> and I would take it apart and I'd remeasure stuff and I would put it back together, and then I'd it, it was it was meticulous as could be but it was pretty nerve wracking the first one. And then once it, once it worked, it worked really well, actually it shot really well. And then I did, I think the following week I did a six, five Creed barrel for the same action. And then it just kind of, kind of started evolving into, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this cartridge this week, or I'm going to do this. And I just kept switching them back and forth on the action, shooting whichever one for that upcoming match or that upcoming weekend. And, I finally decided that I was going to actually start a business and, and do it. Had a lot of requests, a lot of people asking about doing a rifle for them. So I dove into it and never, never have regretted it.
0: Right on. That's awesome. So, Nick, why don't you... uh, So, you helped out a lot in this uh, sort of journey that we've been on, especially with figuring out sort of the logistics of how these rifles would get put together and sort of keeping each individual consumer, if you will... In mind, everything from the accessories that get put on each gun, you know, to the optics, obviously, which we'll get into a little bit. And then and then um, how it was going to be put together. Like I said, you and I built our uh, rifle, or I should say my rifle, because I think you, uh, you you've you been already gravitating towards wanting to claim marks as your own. <laughs> um, but Back uh, off Nick. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, how it was going to get put together, all that stuff. So and, and we're recording this, too. We'll see how many episodes come out of this. But let's just right now pretend this is the main one because we want to make it a real good one. But let's go through and take us through the mindset of somebody getting into PRS, what they're going to need. I think that one thing, and we'll just point out right off the bat, that, that might be a critical component that we are leaving out is that we wanted to talk about, like, custom building a rifle, Certainly, there are other avenues that you can go to probably get into something like PRS or competitive long-range shooting. You could get a factory gun that's just already set up, already put together, already built, and then maybe put a different stock on it that you like better, a couple of different accessories. We wanted to kind of take it the element that a lot of AR builders, you know, people who put an AR together where they get Mm -hmm. the receiver, they get the barrel, they start piecing all that stuff together. That's the route we wanted to go. So. Keep that in mind. We kinda uh, did the, the A to Z but two different paths. Yeah, exactly. So so talk to people a little bit about the idea of somebody taking the more quote entry level approach versus the more, you know, hey, I'm sending it to a, a really competent gunsmith, it's gonna be more money involved, um and, and the parts that you're that you're thinking of too.
2: Yeah, so my first thought when we talked about this project was I wanted to make sure that both rifles were something that i would say a talented shooter could go out and be very competitive with Um, obviously with the one that you and i put together that one is something that the average joe with the most basic tools at his disposal can put together in their own garage and you know it it, the rifle itself i mean functions great um, shoots really well um, but it is missing that little bit of I don't want to say lackluster because it did perform quite well, but that extra note of quality and performance that you get out of a truly custom-built rifle, mm-hmm. like you said, you know, the whole AR builder. I mean, it's it's kind of similar to that in many respects. I and mean, guy Very. can go on and order, have the action ship to his, um, you know, local dealer, be able to go pick up everything, go home, and put together in a night. You know, for anybody watching this episode, um, if you watch the footage of me and Jim putting it together. I had I had never put one together. Um, my father had done several, and he kind of gave me some quick instructions over the phone. So I had no idea what the hell I was doing, and it's, it's going to be pretty obvious in the video. But it still performed; it did its job, um, yeah, and it was one of those things where I know if I take you know somebody like Isaiah here, who's a you know a national level world class shooter, and and hand him that rifle, he's still going to go to that match and perform very well. Yeah. Um, however. You take somebody who's not quite as good, and you hand them that rifle that Isaiah built there, and they're probably going to perform better than they would have if they had used the rifle that we built. So it's it's kind of uh, That's fair. it's 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 interesting that you can still do it um, for fairly inexpensive and get a good performance. But you know, being able to do it yourself versus having somebody like Isaiah build it for you is there is something to that too.
0: Yeah. Now, um, so let's talk a little bit about the parts then that went into this, because I'm sure that, realistically speaking, this could have been done probably cheaper even than we did it or less oh, sure. expensive than even we did it on our, quote, entry-level gun. But again, you said you wanted to have it where – and and I feel I've sort of matured to the point where I see this now. It's, it's kind of the, the old buy-once-cry-once saying, you know, it's a little bit of like – you know, uh, if it's out of necessity, I get it. You're just going to have to deal with maybe some of the frustrations that come along with this. But it, it is better, I think, in, in so many ways to find yourself being less frustrated with things and, and maybe spend a little bit more. But even so, we did so pretty economically here. So what is this? This is this is what we call a, a remage here. And then, and then compare it to what we've done with um, the one that Isaiah put together.
2: Yeah. So the... Your build, the more economical one, um, is going to be just a trued-up Remington 700 action. Uh, it's using a Criterion barrel with a Savage barrel nut system. Um, it's one that if you have the proper headspace gauges, you can screw on there, tighten down that barrel nut, and, and it's ready to rock. Um, we'll, you know, I think that when people watch some of the footage that we have, we'll find out that Our way of doing it, having less experience, our head spacing obviously was not quite as precise as the way that Isaiah does his, um, which is, uh, I think, just a learning curve. Once you do a few of them, you probably get better at it. But that one comes, uh, the way we have that set up is in a KRG Bravo chassis. It's a more entry-level chassis. It's got enough adjustability that you would need to be really everything that you would require to compete in, like, a precision rifle sport like PRS or NRL. We did outfit that with an Arca rail on the fore end. That one. I fought Nick on that one because I thought <laughs> it was too fancy. <laughs> well, but it now is. I, now I like it. <laughs> it is one of those accessories that it's not required. We could have slapped a pick rail on there and and gone that route. Uh, we could have just put it right on the the slingswivel stud too. But our bipod, yeah. Having that Arca rail was not much of an expense, and it does allow you to have a lot more adjustability. Also gives you a nice flat bearing surface should you mm-hmm. want to put you know be shooting off a barricade stuff like that. Um, the other thing that we did was we used a Harris bipod, a you know, very tried and true bipod, uh, very efficient, very functional, very durable. And I noticed
0: Isaiah using that on one of his yeah. Guns. Yep, Isaiah uses. And I felt the real good too. about myself. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, Absolutely. people people don't talk well enough about the Harris, but there are a lot of very high level shooters that still love their Harris bipods. Uh, and then we put a ARCA rail adapter on there so we could slide it back and forth on the ARCA wherever we wanted. And that pretty much completes that build except for yeah. the scope and the rings. Yeah,
0: went with a Strike Eagle 5 to 25 and, uh, and the Precision Match rings. It, it does, does have go.
2: a very efficient uh, Patriot Valley Arms muzzle brake on there, which being that we're shooting a 6.5 Creedmoor, it's not you know super high recoil by any means, but it does tame it down quite a bit. Yeah,
0: and real quick too, where did we get all that stuff?
2: Uh, So we got a lot of it from Northland Shooting Supply. Right. Um, Those guys are great over there. Uh, Then we got the other portions from KRG, and then we ordered the bipod directly from Harris. Yeah. And then, of course, the Patriot Valley, uh, muzzle brake from Patriot Valley. Right. Gotcha.
0: So, Isaiah, what then goes into, like, I remember joking around, aside from the fact that Nick and I had to put the dang thing together four (laughs) times and take it apart, you know, whatever. uh, We just kept forgetting parts. Really, it was just a matter of uh, excitement and lack of reading directions. But as we put it together, I remember thinking to myself, you know, it's shocking, you know, how sort of easy it seems, you know? I mean, you just kind of take the receiver here, slap a barrel on, tighten it down, and uh, check the little go-no-go thing, and okay, we were off to the races. What is it that's so much different that you're doing? Like we're starting out, this is uh, Mark, you went with a proof barrel, so it's carbon wrapped, mm-hmm. it's big old bowl barrel kinda style. But you're actually cutting threads into the into the barrel. You're actually you're actually removing material away from the barrel that you can snug it up to a receiver. What is it that's so much different about that
1: that makes it so much? Well, the, the, the time that it takes, you know, you, when you're putting on a, uh, a like a criterion such as your build, somebody has already put in that time for you. Somebody mm-hmm. has already done the, the threading of the tenon. They've already done the chambering. They've already done the majority of the time that is consumed. When you start with a blank, you know, it's, it's kind of a, kind of like starting with a clean canvas. You just take some measurements as we did at the shop yesterday to your action start laying everything out get everything running true zeros uh, bore center line and start the build from there
3: describe maybe talk a little bit deeper on like that full zeros because that was something we spent a lot of time on really it's like we, we focus so much time on really just one specific part of the rifle but it was so critical to get
1: everything about that right that's absolutely correct you know you want as minimum as possible, minimal as possible of run out on bore center line when you're getting ready to do anything with them. You want everything square with the bore. So trying to get that down to one ten thousandths is absolutely paramount in accuracy, keeping everything uh, consistent, you know, an offset bore if you chamber it, uh, I know we talked about this some yesterday, but y- you know, you- it can enlarge your chamber size, which Creates problems down the road if you're reloading. I mean, could potentially, if it was really bad, create problems with a, d- a dangerous problem. But uh, mm-hmm. uh, especially with reloading, so on. You know, that's that's one of the things that I think no matter what what gunsmith in the country will all agree on. That's that's one of the few things that very few will disagree on. That, that the closer to zeros you can make them run, the better it's going to be. The more accurate the rifle's going to be. And it's never proven me wrong that way, so I I try to stick with what what works and what works well. And I know sometimes you know, we spent quite a bit of time up there yesterday, but sometimes it it seems like it's almost impossible to get them to run zeros. Just it, it's one of those things that can either fight you or sometimes five minutes and you're you're running running good, but mm-hmm. uh, you definitely. You know, everything works off of a center axis in it. You know, everything in the whole rifle works off that. So we just try to keep everything straight, true, action, true to the barrel, chamber, true to, to the action, everything throughout.
0: And if you, uh, if you actually were doing that measurement off the outside of the barrel, we found that it's not always the same. You don't always necessarily... The spot that you would keep it where it's all centered up and true and running zeros on the bore... If you then put the same sort of uh, indicator, me- indicator yep. on the outside of the barrel, then you're running it, and all of a sudden you can see, like, whoa, the bore might not actually necessarily be either perfectly perfectly in the center of this barrel blank or this big giant yep. barrel, or there may be just, like, this slight kind of um, oblongness to yep. the outside or yep. something, which was kind of weird to think. Because yep. usually you just look at a barrel and your eyes perceive it Yeah, that's just like a nice round circle.
3: It
2: yeah, looks like it's you, in the you center gonna, to me. <laughs> yeah, you weren't going to
0: notice that with
3: the
1: naked yeah. eye. But no. we're, we're dealing with uh, the the that particular barrel. We was dealing with five and a half thousandths. Oh yeah. Um. So, yeah your your eyes are never going to notice that without that type of equipment indicator tools to show you what it was actually doing. Nobody would have ever been to the wiser, but um, it's definitely. That's something that is almost expected uh, to me. You know, bore center line and and OD of the barrel are are very seldom within a thousandth of one another. You know, they're they're typically in that five to seven. It's not really an issue whatsoever as long as we're going to work off bore center line anytime we're doing any threading, chambering, anything such as that. So the OD of the barrel is strictly cosmetic at that point. It doesn't do anything as far as the Mm -hmm. integrity of it or accuracy so
3: and so to to, I guess to uh, account for that variance or you removed material from
1: the outside diameter right I did but not uh, I mean we had to cut the tenon down to get our dimension for our action which uh, okay right uh, we used a defiance ruckus so it was a inch oh sixty two sixteen 62 16 threads per inch Mm -hmm. so no matter what that offset was, we was gonna have to cut that tenon down to inch oh six two.
3: Okay, tube. gotcha. So, gotcha. Um,
1: it, yeah, you were gonna get there anyway. Yeah, we was gonna get there regardless. It didn't matter. Um, didn't matter what we had to take. That's what we had to do to build our shoulder or tenon, so we could thread it and screw the action. Yeah.
0: As long as you're centered up on the bore, then
1: nothing else really matters. You're cutting off around
0: the outside, yeah, it's not a big deal. Yeah. You're gonna end up centered up. And again, that five ten thousands, like you're saying, too. Once you actually get it to your eye, and you actually end up putting it on the rifle, somebody might think, well, is it going to look weird? when it's on? No, no, it doesn't at all. It's it's imperceivable.
1: You'll, yeah, never um, know.
0: Yeah. So it seemed like the, you know, I'm glad you mentioned, too, because we were talking about parts on the other rifle. You know, we got this Defiance Action, really well known for being a super high-quality action. Lots of good parts in here. We got this proof barrel. We got the Whiskey three. Chassis that it went in, correct? Yeah, Whiskey 3 from KRG,
2: uh, Kinetic Research Group. Uh, fantastic, very adjustable chassis. That one's actually the competition chassis, so it has an integral uh, Arca rail mm-hmm. built right into the aluminum end So a little bit more rigidity, and you don't have to bolt things together to actually attach that rail. It's just
1: there.
0: Yep. A little bit fancier, MDT bipod, stuff like that. Yeah, Trigger, that,
1: trigger tech. Diamond, yeah, that's right. Trigger, trigger tech, diamond, diamond trigger. That. Amazing. Ooh, that's I'd something add. that I think everybody noticed today pretty well is, <laughs> yep. you know, the difference in, uh, let's say, a, a factory trigger or production trigger versus a an aftermarket is, is absolutely did. huge. That we did. That's a big difference. Um,
3: that, that's one thing that, you know, in my early years of hunting, you know, where you talk to guys and be like, oh, man, I got this trigger. And you're like, yeah, trigger's a trigger, you know. And then you start, you know, getting your hands on a couple nice ones, and you're like, oh, no, no, that's actually like a giant
0: deal. Like, that's a really yeah. big deal. trigger is not just a trigger. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that that's what goes into kind of our recipe here. But uh, obviously you know having a recipe is is having a recipe it's having a good chef to put it all together that's another part of the the, the uh the essential part of the equation it seemed like you know obviously a lot of time was spent getting this barrel just right to fit into our action. And I'm sure on other guns that you've done in the past, if you're doing something with more of a, Nick was saying, you know, more of a manner stock, or more of a traditional stock or something like that, not this chassis style, there's other stuff you're going to have to do and you're going to have to go in and open up certain things or whatever on the actual stock. But a great deal of what you're doing is kind of making the, uh, I guess what a lot of people just kind of um, somewhat jokingly refer to as just the stick, right? I mean, because when you have this precision bolt-action rifle, that's kind of what it is. It's just a big, long barrel with an action on the end that just does the job of getting the cartridge chambered up and ready to go boom. So, a lot of time was spent on, uh, on getting that barrel to fit into the action. How is it that you get it so precise? Um, what, is, what is different that you're doing compared to, let's say, you know, just some mass-produced factory bolt-action rifle?
1: Well, spending that time that we spent getting everything running a hundred percent true—you um, know, not close. We when we started, we was a hundred percent. We was spot on. That's that's mm-hmm. where we want to be, and that's something that no matter, you know, even with some of the best equipment in the world, if you want to mass produce it, the the quality is going to go down as far as the being able to get that run out on them you know anything that's going to happen faster isn't going to happen as precise for the most part because
0: you gotta assume that if you're cranking out thousands of rifles for example they can't have as tight a tolerance as maybe as you're trying to achieve because they're making so darn many they'd be throwing out parts left and right all over yeah. the place cuz they wouldn't be fitting together. Yeah. So they got to open them up maybe a little bit more to try and allow them to well, if I grab this barrel from over here and this lot and I grab this receiver from over here and this, you know, they they'll go together.
2: Yeah. That's something that I think I took from watching Isaiah work on that rifle yesterday. You know, if you're doing a mass produced rifle, you have to be able to grab any one of those barrels that are on the shelf they are supposed to go with that action and put them on any of the actions that are in that box over there and it's supposed to work well there's tolerance stacking there watching right. isaiah take that barrel and fit it to that action as precisely as it was is i mean precision rifles having everything done to such a pre- precise measure I mean I, I've never seen nothing but amazing quality out of everything he's done And I, I think I can see why now it's, it's pretty apparent once I watch him go through the process
3: When we got to the you know the go no-go gauge part, you know, and he's like, ah, oh, this is you know where we want it and you know uh, And it was just spot-on. I mean you close the bolt with the go gauge I mean she just drops right in it's almost like just zero resistance and then uh the uh the no go, I mean it locks up. I mean bam. Like it I mean there's no slop, there's no halfway, it's just like, yep, she's not gonna go.
0: Let's uh explain a go no go gauge here real quick too, for those not familiar. I know I, I And maybe run out too.
1: Run out, that's just like That's your 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 overall center on on bower line. Yeah. Um
0: if you got a lot of run out, then that means you're going
1: off of off center off it's center. it's basically making a an egg shape or okay you, gotcha um so that's one of the big killers of time yesterday for us was getting everything on that end of it done but yep. uh what else what
0: what was the first question we're talking about go no go gauges. oh yeah yep. go go Sorry. go we threw, no go we two questions at once yep. at you, but yeah. I like, know. Anyway. explaining explaining the what first, those the, the are the first exactly. one was for me uh, a <laughs> go, that's all right that's all right there,
1: there's actually three gauges um I guess there is three battle gauges, so to speak. There is a go, there is a no go, and there is a field gauge. Hmm. Um, but in in gunsmithing, typically a go and a no go gauge is plenty good enough. Uh, most times you can get away with one or the other. But to have it that way, you know that if it closes on a no go or a go gauge, and it's and it's a clean close, you don't you don't want to feel any resistance mm-hmm. on. it. And then when you put a no go in it, you don't want to be able to. Push the bolt down. Period. You want it uh, to just start down and lock up tight, mm-hmm. and that that'll maintain that minimum clearance. And that's something that it doesn't matter what action or what barreled action it is. If you shoot for that same setup on your your Remington action versus your Defiance action, you know, if we set them both up that way with that particular set of gauges, then you guys can physically shoot each other's hand-loaded ammunition or you can Mm. set your resizing die up and it's going to bump back the same on on both rifles so just trying to maintain that throughout yeah Um, not that you know the barrels are definitely not interchangeable between your rifles but the ammunition could be Mm -hmm. Uh, trying to keep that tolerance as tight as possible and you definitely do not want to be able to close the bolt on a on a no go gauge right. at all, That's... and
0: and then like what they physically are too, if you haven't ever seen one, they look sort of like the back half of a cartridge, like a case. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're just these silver little. Uh, they're not. They don't look like a full cartridge, a uh, fully loaded cartridge or anything. But just, they just are like these silver kind of bullet looking things with a back end on it, like the uh, what do they call it, the base of your case? I like, suppose right. Like a piece of.
1: Uh, they look like a piece of brass. They have no neck. Yeah. They've got a shoulder but no right. neck, okay. and they. They headspace, uh, well, those particular cartridges headspace off the datum point of the shoulder. Okay. Now, like on a rimmed Magnum, uh, 300 Win Mag, 7mm seven, uh, seven millimeter Magnum, anything that's a rimmed, they headspace off the rim, typically. Okay your gauges that'll come with those are really, really short, like an inch long, and they just have a a, a rim on them. So oh, Okay.
2: When you say rim, you're you talking about like the same thing as a belted, a belted magnum?
1: A belted cartridge. Okay, got oh, it. I'm sorry. I said rim, but a belted magnum, 300 wind mag, okay. 338 Winchester. Seven millimeter ring to magnum. Seven rim mag. Okay. Yeah. okay. They, uh, they headspace off the, the belt on them rather than the datum point of the shoulder. Okay. Oh,
2: that's... That would be confusing if you didn't know that.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you first look at them, you pull them out, and you see a cartridge that's three inches long and yeah, that a headspace gauge that's three-quarters of an inch long. and it's Yeah, a,
0: that'd trip you up, maybe. Yeah. What are they actually doing then? So the fact is that when you, you're you essentially sort of... Uh, I guess we were determining how far the barrel sets into the receiver, essentially.
1: Well, with a with a headspace gauge, we we already set the barrel up to the receiver
0: okay, initially.
1: Right, 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 right. So so what we did was we set the the tenon up on the barrel, and we stopped the the barrel short of the front of the bolt lugs,
2: mm-hmm. and which we, we'll
0: talk about in a bit here too. Why we're and doing that?
1: Then we cut our bolt nose recess in. Yes, and, and we set it up with our clearance on bolt nose recess. So all we was doing with the gauges was determining how deep we put the chamber in the barrel.
0: Oh, that's right. It's
1: chamber. Um, mm. It by at that point the 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 tenon was already done on the cartridge, right, or on the on the on the action. So right. all we was doing was creeping up on the on the chamber to get it to the exact measurement that we want it. Right.
0: And why is that so important then that like what's so special about this go gauge that when you can push the bolt forward and have it just go right in and drop down nicely? Why is that so important to achieve? And, you know, it's it's really paramount that you don't have it where you can let the no-go gauge drop down. What's the difference between the
1: two? I mean, it comes to a safety issue on on the short side of it. You know, there's a SAMI length for every cartridge or mm-hmm. most every cartridge. So if you're bringing out uh, boxed Hornaday ammunition like we were shooting today, you know they've got a they're set at a standard length. If you get it to where it's too short of a chamber you either won't close the bolt on a factory ammunition or it becomes difficult to close on it. You'll feel resistance on it. So you want to be over that tolerance, which Mm -hmm. is your go gauge, but you definitely don't want the no-go gauge to to close on it because at that point in time, it becomes dangerous. Is Uh, that because
0: you've seated the cartridge
1: in too far? The cartridge has too much space between the bolt and the the front of the chamber. And it potentially can cause an explosion is it's what it is not necessarily it,
3: it's not being supported
1: it's it's completely unsupported until it's until it's fired right and then it blows out to the to the chamber forward wherever it is the brass is going to adhere to it the brass will be the same size as the chamber when it comes out but we want to minimize that ability to grow mm-hmm.
2: so with that Possibly induce like the the cartridge itself to erupt to break it, open. It
1: absolutely can. Okay, I so mean, that's where
2: you could have that explosion coming yeah. instead of go, going down the barrel, going outwards. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah. Actually, now I can finally sort of picture that. And there again, to your point, if you if you put it in there and you got the no go, or I'm sorry, you got the go gauge to close, just fine. But you kind of just reamed out that chamber a little bit too far, and that it closed on the no go gauge. You're kind of starting a little bit all back over again, right? Cuz now you got to go and you got to take the barrel back out again and kind of shave everything down, yeah. so to speak, yeah. and...
1: you try your best not to ever go too far. It's yeah. always easier to creep up on it than it is to to have to work back with uh, the material than to, to put it back. Yes. And
3: that's definitely something we saw throughout that process was it was slow remove a little bit of material, you know, and then you'd be meticulous about cleaning that material and getting it out of the way and lubricating and you know, it was,
1: uh, it was pretty, uh, laborious really. Yeah, yeah. It it's, it's, very repetitious. You know, there's, there's a lot of that stuff that, you know, uh, when we was actually doing the chambering, you know, uh, uh, cutting a chamber 20 thousands at a time when you're dealing with a two inch or inch, inch 850 chamber, you know, that, that becomes a lot of time. <laughs> of I'm
0: glad we weren't we, doing we, it for like a, like a 300, whatever, who knows right. what, 20 eight 20 eight C or 28 twenty or whatever. Nozzler, yeah. But
1: You don't want to let your chip load get on your reamer and get, you don't want your chip load too, too heavy or it'll start scratching chambers. It'll start doing a lot of other stuff. Sure. So you kind of got to take it in little, little steps and just take your time. It does some days it gets monotonous, but it just seems to be the best way to do it and get good, consistent, clean cut chamber.
2: Well, it certainly looks like a, I mean, paid off watching you do it. I mean, it Mm -hmm. was meticulous. It was monotonous. Um, but the overall quality of the product at the end was, I mean, we, we were all just baffled at how small groups were shooting at 700 yards with it. I mean, it was fantastic. That is true.
0: Can you go back and explain your t- the 10000s thing where you got to leave some space for the bolt head and the bolt lugs and stuff yeah. like that? Thought-
1: what, what's... 5000 five is, is, is what we set it up. So, oh, okay. Um, we Don't want... do not
0: do 5000 thousandths. That yeah, sounds like yeah. it's way too small. Yeah. You might pull well, yourself up. You
1: probably have a little friction at that point. But <laughs> okay. anyway, um, the front of the bolt lugs, we we try to get them right on five thousandths off the back of the barrel. So they're not touching the back they're of the barrel. They're not touching the back of the barrel, but physically they're two sheets of notebook paper, you know, in, in layman's terms. Mm-hmm. Between... The front of the bolt lugs and the back of the, the barrel tenant. And then on the bolt nose recess again, we're doing the same thing there. We're putting 5,000 clearance between the front of the bolt nose itself and the rear of the chamber. Mm-hmm. So we don't want any resistance, but we don't want excessive distance there either. Because the deeper you put that, let's say our bolt nose recess, we would have went an extra ten thousandths. So we'd have put 15 on it instead of five. That's an extra ten thousandths of unsupported case in the chamber sticking out of the back of the chamber. Problem again. Which can lead to, you know, it can rupture. If if it gets excessive there, it definitely can cause some case swelling. We talked about moisture this morning. You know, what moisture does... Well, if you, if you go to a match and it's raining or you're out hunting and it's you're in a torrential downpour, there's going to be pressure built. You know, a lot of shooters, a lot of hunters have seen where it blows primers because the pressure gets pretty excessive. No. There's uh, just hydraulic pressure
0: in that chamber. It, it
1: is. It, it, it takes up a lot of valuable space and it creates high pressure. Well, if that high pressure happens and we've got, we want to keep – as little unsupported case as possible, because Mm -hmm. if that pressure would happen and you happen to have an extra 20,000 unsupported case, that's more room for problems to happen. Mm. Now I'm curious, because
0: I am thinking to myself, like, when you really think about the fact that these cases are made out of brass, it's not exactly what most people go to as like, hey, we need a really strong metal. And then, so now I'm thinking, like, do people have less of that kind of stuff? Is there less danger if you using steel case, or is it still the same amount of danger? Because I know there's some drawbacks to, you know, whatever. But now this is just purely out of curiosity. Do they? Ha- is there less of a chance you're going to have something blow up if you had a steel case for a I
1: would be lying to you if I told you for sure yes or no on that. Yeah, as I'm not far gonna as be the guy to steel test it, steel, <laughs> I would think would have a little more rigidity, but then again the 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 whole reason for brass cases is the ability to anneal them reload them yeah you know uh the the reusability of them uh it's so easy to work with it's it's a soft enough material to reshape reform resize but yet rugged enough to contain the pressure that we're putting the rifles up to or the loads up to and it's impressive. It, it really is an amazing material when you think about, like, what you can
3: do and, like, the fact that it is, I like, guess, malleable enough to yeah. reshape and reform and
1: reuse but yeah. also withstand. 55,000 PSI <laughs> cup pressure. That's yeah, crazy. That'll do. Uh, yeah, it's. Thanks, brass. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. This you know message what? brought to you by brass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's
3: right. Just
0: in general, Brass. You know, one thing—the you know, one thing that I was reminded of as we were doing this—is uh, so we got an in-house photographer at Vortex. You know, does all the catalog, website images, and stuff like that. If you, I've—I've um, I've gone in and some seen some of these photo sessions, and uh, guy's been doing it for like forty years or something like that. Maybe that—I don't know—a long time. And uh, basically, if you go in, you'll see him. He's—he's he's toying around all the time with lights, right? He's got—he's got lights all over the place, and he's got some thing down on the table that he's going to get a picture of, you know, and he's got he's got little filters that the light's going through. He's got little pieces of cardboard that it's shining off of different colors. Some of the cardboard's black, some of it's white. He's getting everything just right. I mean, it takes him to take one photo that's going to go into our catalog. It could take him the full day or maybe the half, half day, whatever, longer than you would expect, you know, especially when you're somebody who just goes over to your plate of food in some hipster restaurant and just, you know, snaps your picture on your iPhone in five seconds. And I remember asking him like so, so so riddle me this, right? We got a team of graphics uh, people as well. Like uh, um, graphic uh, what do you graphic I, designers. Graphic designers. designers, yeah. I don't know why I blanked on that name, but we got a team of graphic designers all really good at Photoshop. Can kind of make anything look like anything, right? And I said so tell riddle me this. Why are you taking so much time on getting your photos set up just right with all this lighting when you could just snap the picture basically on your iPhone these days and send it off to a graphic designer and they can do everything in Photoshop, and he was saying, well, there's basically two different ways of doing a really nice photo. He's like, I can go through and get the lighting so perfect that I've essentially done Photoshop for them mm-hmm. like already, and it takes more time, but when the picture is done, and I've seen it, he'll take a picture, no editing whatsoever, it looks Photoshopped like so perfect. Or he said or I can just take a really kind of just like crappy photo and have them go in and they'll they'll spend then all the time editing it and getting it to look just perfect. And that was reminding me of what I've seen a lot of people do with rifles versus ammo, right? So you'll have somebody go in and they'll spend like what we've seen here, like Isaiah spends all the time this meticulous detail monotonous mm-hmm. things doing processes exactly right, measuring things perfectly and you're thinking to yourself like Dude, I know people who just get the factory gun and then they'll just load ammo and they'll test everything just like arduously testing all these different, you know, powder charges and bullets and brass and this. Yeah, ladder testing and all that. And uh, they'll get a factory gun to shoot just right. But what I'm seeing you do is you're almost doing all this work on the fore end. so that way we shot lots of different kinds of ammo through these guns today. And pretty much every single one of them was shooting... Well, oh, actually, I don't even mean, have to say. Pretty much every single one of them was shooting sub MOA. No doubt about that. Right. Oh yeah. Most of them, except for I think one of them. We're shooting
2: half him away or better. I think even that one was under a half. I, I know, honesty, there there was they all shot great, but that's, I think that's we, when you know you're being picky, right? I know, right. Uh, but you're 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 100 right on the nuts with that. The having a great baseline to start off with, you can take most any ammunition and put that in that uh, rifle that Isaiah built there, and it's going to shoot good. Yes, um, you can take the same rifle that me and Jim built there and shoot it and it's gonna shoot good Uh, you can hand load tune the ammunition for the rifle and have it shoot amazing but if you put that same time and energy into hand loading for a rifle like Isaiah built there it's Mm. gonna shoot absurdly well I mean there was a couple of groups down there that were you
0: know
2: three three, four rounds in in literally a single hole yeah and I mean, you can't ask for it to be better than that. It's already there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, a little bit of what we wanted to get at here being that, you know, essentially there's two routes one could go. I'm sure that we would, with a lot of tinkering, a lot of time, probably some ladder tests, some loading, you know, switching up or adjusting a trigger a little bit here and there, we could maybe get our gun working or shooting about as good as Mark's where, you know, Mark sent it off to Isaiah, Isaiah put in all the time and work, you know, he spits it out and Mark gets it and then he just buys factory ammo that that factory already loaded up for him and goes out and he shoots one perfect hole at hundred yards. Meanwhile, you know, we're putting in a lot of work, maybe spending a little bit less money, but you know, it takes a, a lot on our part to then get it to even close to that level. Well, is- I've got,
3: you know, essentially three off the shelf loads that work famously Right. Oh yeah. Where you're having to do that work on the back end to tweak and this and adjust and really find that one load that's going to do really well.
1: Right. That's something that I feel really strongly on, and it's kind of, you know, we talk about we, we talked about this earlier when we were shooting groups at 100, what they would translate to at 500, what they would translate to at a thousand, you know, uh, what the the minute of angle diversion would be, you know, one rifle that'll shoot. You know, physically shoot a five-inch group at a thousand one rifle that shoots a ten-inch group. I hear a lot of people talk about you know, like entry-level guns, and and believe me, I'm one of the one of the biggest ducks in the puddle of trying to get people involved in the sport. But it's kind of the whole system is kind of a little bit backwards in that aspect because a entry-level shooter really needs to have a rifle with as little of error in it as possible yes. because they're going to put some error. Everybody does. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, you know, physically you could take a handful of the, t- the top shooters in the United States and put them behind most any rifle. Right. And they're going to shoot pretty well with it because they have worked relentlessly to, to remove all the human error that they can from it. Right. So it, it kind of works on a backward scale in that aspect. You take a, a brand-new shooter, and they come out with a, a, a mediocre rifle, uh, let's just say, or one that's – let's say we're, we're taking that rifle that will hold a 5-inch group at 500 yards, a one MOA group versus a half MOA group. They've already opened their odds up of – or their opportunity up of missing the target target. Without even taking their their error into account. Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean, and the same thing goes for tinkering a lot with, let's say, a mediocre rifle, right? Right. And and for the reference too, at this point in time, where we're saying mediocre rifles, we're not referring to our entry level gun here, because I would I would say that's definitely definitely oh. a step above mediocre. But anyway, Big you hunt? know, let's say yes. you come out with a rather mediocre rifle, though, there are ways to make it shoot better, right? There- you can. You can, you can do this thing called, I've heard people talk about bumping it back, right? Like where you take factory loaded ammo and you bump the seating depth or something like that back a little bit further. You do a lot of testing. You go out, you purchase a bunch of reloading equipment. You start loading up your own ammunition. You find what that rifle likes. But all these things that we're talking about, your entry level person who was just listening to me, like I can just picture their blood pressure boiling, right? As as right. you're just sort of like, yep. oh, I got this rifle. It's really affordable, you know. It's gonna work. Uh, it should kind of work okay, but how do I make it work better? It's like, well, you know, like get all this reloading equipment, learn all this <laughs> stuff, like start going to the range every day and testing and ladder to you know do this, yeah. don't do that, and all of a sudden now it's like, oh, I almost need to be a pro to actually right. figure out how to make this entry level gun work really well so you almost just make somebody into a pro and you know then they have to buy all, you know a bunch of equipment or spend a bunch of time and it may
3: is... not sound fun anymore
0: right or and, and there is an element too of like your time is valuable and so when you think about how much money you want to invest in something also think about that your time has value to it as well and sometimes getting something that has had you know somebody else's time really put a lot into it Um, and making it so good and making it such that it's not necessarily going to be the thing slowing you up and that you can work on yourself a little bit more rather than trying to have to spend so much time working Mm -hmm. on the
2: piece of equipment. That is Part of the reason why I have rifle done by Isaiah is that the rifle is going to outperform me every day. I can be, you know, on my on my bad days, I could be a, a minute of angle shooter, but I know the rifle is going to be shooting the tenths or the quarter minute of, all the time. So if I'm shooting a group that's a minute, I know it's me. And being able to, the hardest thing to work on, but the most important thing to work on is yourself. So if you have the equipment to get the job done right out the get-go, being able to come back and okay what do i need to start training on right that's super important for anybody getting this game is and that's you know equipment's very important having good equipment right out the gate um, you don't have to get caught up on equipment though you don't need to buy a different stock different you know different scope different rings you know you, you don't not that type of but starting off with a rifle that's going to shoot well and then work on yourself is more important i think than anything
3: well, you look at it, and I mean, it's really nice to be able to have the confidence to be at when you're trying to progress and become a better shooter to essentially remove this giant set of variables. Right? You're like, well, I know it's not this, right? Mm-hmm. So then it's like, okay, so maybe it is my grip, or maybe I'm imparting this, or you know, my trigger press, or whatever any number of things that it could be. But man, when you only have to focus on you, that that's a big deal. Yeah. And, and I think you know, you're talking. I kind of maybe misspoke a little bit in some ways because once you get into something, like part of the fun yeah. is the figuring out
1: and the tinkering. Yeah. yeah, but gotta get into it first. But you got to get into it first. <laughs> you do, and it's the talent level in this sport in in precision rifle shooting has grown so much in in the past five or six years that I guess in some cases it's almost a little bit humbling to people. They, they come into it and they, they didn't feel like they'd done well, performed well. Well, that's because there's, there's a lot of people out there that's been doing it for 10, 15 years that, that has put in way more time, you know, and definitely nobody needs to get discouraged, you know, it, no matter what, if they're at an entry-level rifle or a, a mid-level or a top end or whatever it is, you know, there's always a way around it. There's, there's always something you can work through if you need to you know, if if you're doing your best to save as much money as you can and you, and you are on that entry-level rifle, try try working with the load a little bit. Try some different ammunition. If it doesn't like one particular box of ammo, try, try a different grain, uh, a different bullet weight. Try a different brand uh, manufacturer. You know, there's a lot of things that they can try to, to try to maximize what they've got.
0: Mm-hmm. One other thing that I thought was pretty cool that goes into what you do as a gunsmith and, and taking so much time to try and make everything, you know, I, I would I would venture to, to say, you know, obviously you do a lot of guns, a lot of guns come through here, and a lot of each one is unique and different. But, for example, both our guns are 6.5 Creedmoors here. I'm sure you've done plenty of 6.5 Creedmores. And you were saying that, you know, let's say at a match, somebody's 6.5 Creedmoor happens to go down somehow. You've you've put in so much work to making it such that you make your 6.5 Creedmoors in such a way that somebody who maybe has to use somebody else's rifle that was also built by you at a match would still at least be able to use their own ammunition they had, whether it was factory or loaded, and it would at least perform pretty close to about the same. Yeah. Um, I, I
1: mean, you know, if if they're if they're both shooting hand loaded ammunition, that's that's a big variable, you know. Yeah. One guy might like to shoot 147 grain Hornadays. one guy might like to shoot 130 grain burgers, the next guy might want Sierra, you know. So how it actually reacts to those, but w- what I was referring to was from from a a case standpoint, from a cartridge standpoint. Right the throats the overall length the bullet you know everything's going to be pretty well pretty well spot on from there so from that standpoint you know heck in some cases you could probably find that your ammo may shoot even better in somebody else's rifle or they might decide that they need to switch what their recipe is at that point in time but uh, they'll they'll function and be safe in each other's yeah uh,
0: yeah
2: well that was like You know, we were shooting different factory ammo down here, and you had some of your 6.5 ammo that you loaded and other rifles that you had built and that shot well, and it shot well out of this rifle too, but that was, of course, built by you to the same tolerances that you always use.
1: Absolutely, and that's just kind of a pet load, I guess. You know, everybody's pet load with a three oh eight years ago used to be a 168 Sierra Match King and, you know... 45 grains of argot or whatever it was. Everybody had their their little pet load for it, and that's just one that I have found through the years that always we can take that load, I am certain, with both of these rifles and tweak it a little bit and make it even better. But it's one that just always consistently gives me good results. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one that I like to just keep around, and it gives me a good reference point of, you know, if, if something quirky is going on with a rifle or I have a customer call and say, hey, this thing opened up and it's now shooting two-inch groups, I can grab a handful of that, come out and shoot a couple five-shot groups with it. And if it's truly shooting a two-inch group, we need to, we need to go figure out yeah, what it is. Right. If it goes back to shooting little bitty groups, then we need to address what they've done in the reloading department or what has went astray somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, re- reloading
2: is one of those ones that can either really help you or hinder you. I've seen a lot of times where guys will reload because they want to get better performance, and I see their performance go down because they're not quite doing something right, you know. Right. That That's, you know, we talked about trimming brass and, and how a lot of people way over trim their brass, whether it be too far
1: or too often.
0: Oh, yeah, and then now, you get that, uh, you, were talking, you were telling us about that.
1: Yeah, get, get a ring that carbon that you ring get. in them, yeah. I had a customer show up, uh, It's it's been a couple of months ago, um, And I'm not making fun of him at all. Please don't think that I am. But uh, he had a rifle that, uh, when when it was done here, and it's only uh, that particular barrel's only four or five months old. You know, I shot it the same way I shot your guys's rifle today. We broke in the barrel. It shot little bitty groups. He took it home, shot a few matches with it. He called me one time one day and said, "Yeah, it's uh, I don't know what's going on with it, but it's kind of sporadic. It'll shoot like." two in one hole and two in another hole, and then maybe one a little high. It's like shooting inch groups. Okay, bring it over. So he brought it back to me, and I went and got just a a pet load for that particular cartridge, come out and shot a 150,000s group with it. So I said, let's see some of your ammo. So he hands me his ammo, and I look at it, and the bullet is clearly seated in 300,000s deeper than it should be I mean it was obvious With the naked eye Of how short the bullet was And I said Who's been messing With your seating die I don't know Nobody that I'm aware of Well come to find out Somebody had been messing With his seating <laughs> die It was his nephew Oh my gosh And he had screwed The seating die Way down on it Well he just He had never touched it So he didn't worry about it assumed He assumed it just, was right Because he, he, he did last He just put bullets time. in And started So he was jumping bullets You know 300,000s Or 320,000s wow. Um uh, So we pulled a bunch of bullets and and re-neck-sized everything and put it all back together. His his powder charge was great. Everything was spot on. It just didn't like that half inch or three-eighths inch of jump that it was taking. So once we did that, it went back to shooting little bitty groups for him, and it was all spot on. But that's just one of the things that a person really may not account for, but it, it definitely comes into play. Yeah, yep. think
3: that's a that's a good example of the level of precision that you're getting with these rifles though when you're going
1: man this thing's shooting an inch we got big problems (laughs) right (laughs) yeah 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 it uh, i mean my expectations have changed dramatically over the last the last 10 years for sure you know i've got uh, i've got a bunch of rifles that 15 years ago i was uh, i would have sat here with you all saying i got a rifle that'll outshoot most anything, you know, this rifle shoots really good. And now when I get them out for, you know, just the sake of conversation and I'll come out with the same awesome load that I had back in the day and I'll shoot them and they shoot like three quarter inch or inch. And I'm like, I ought to sell this. It doesn't shoot very good. You know, (laughs) My, my expectations have changed so much for, for accuracy that it's pretty baffling, I guess, anymore. It it, mm. it takes a it takes quite a bit for me to be impressed with them. I, I want to get the utmost accuracy that we absolutely can out of them for everybody.
0: Yeah. yeah. So uh, let's talk about this aspect of it. Let's say now somebody decides they want to go custom gunsmith route, you know, like Mark. I don't want to put the thing together. I want to have somebody else put it together for me. Makes a whole lot of sense, Jim. I know. I know. Uh, let's say they decide on that. What do they do next? Do they call you up first? Do they start looking for parts first? Do they, you know, do they just say, hey, whatever's the most expensive thing, I'll buy that and then send it to this guy.
1: Um, that's, that's kind of on the customer, you know, if yeah. they want to, if they want to get their own parts, you know, I don't have a problem with that whatsoever. Uh, I typically keep all the, the upper end stuff in stock, you know, uh, a good supply of high quality barrels, uh. Most all of the upper end actions that are on the market today, I, I try to keep. You know, I keep a lot of Manners stocks, Tom Manners, uh, Missouri boy. So I, I try to, he, he's always been really good to me. So I keep a lot of his stuff on hand. That's what I personally shoot. Not that there's anything wrong with any of the, the chassis setups or there's a lot of good stuff out there. It's just what I keep. But if somebody wants something else, i sure enough get them what they want, or they can get it and send it to me. It, it makes no difference to me. Gotcha. And then... Oops, oh. I was just
2: going to say, it is it is important to know for anybody who watches the video of like what we do, what we have for the rifle here from Mark. We kind of, I don't want to say went overboard, but we did everything to make it bougie for Mark. Um, we didn't have to I've, go the route right of the carbon I mean, fiber I've barrels. have
3: grown accustomed to a certain <laughs> standard of living. Right?
2: Well, I mean, you, well, you see, I would say at most like PRS matches, you, you're not going to see carbon fiber barrels. Um, they're almost all going to be a solid big chunk of steel. And... One of the reasons why I went with carbon fiber is because it was more expensive. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And Mark likes things light, and although that rifle's not light, it's also nowhere near as heavy as a lot of match rifles. Um, the fact is, is, is I could bend back into the truck bed and pick it up from a seated position, and, and most of
0: <laughs> Nick's guns or Scott Parks's guns, I can't do that with it's, it you know, has, having a hernia.
1: Even with the carbon fiber barrel, though, the, the way that that rifle is set up, the way it's weighted right now, it balances well.
2: Yeah, And That's balance
1: cool. is key. Uh, you know, weight overall is fine. You know, it can be light, it can be heavy, but we want to try to keep that balance point Um, as close to that front action screw as we can that's that's where we want that balance point to be Uh, it'll make the rifle react better when you're shooting off of a bag or Mm -hmm. in a hunting scenario out of the fork of a tree or whatever it may be Um, as long as you don't you know you don't want to build a rifle that is tremendously heavy on the back and put a carbon fiber barrel on it because it's going to want to it'll be light in the front or vice versa you don't want to do one that's tremendously light in the rear and have a a inch 250 straight taper barrel for 30 inches because it's going to it's going to work the other way for you so finding that balance point you know my my son's rifle weighs eight and a half pounds complete and optic the whole nine yards and i shoot it off of gates and game changers and Pretty much everything you can imagine, and it pretty well reacts the same as my 21 pound match rifle does, as far as point of impact and being able to watch watch trace go downrange. So, you know that that rifle there just it, it balances really well where it is. So.
2: I find that the, the balance point on that one is about maybe an inch forward of the magwell, which if you're gonna be putting something on a cattle gate or shooting, you know, off of really any type of barricade, you know, we're down there shooting off of a game changer, you could set that rifle on top of there and walk away and it's not gonna move. Absolutely. So yeah. it, it right. takes a lot less muscle work yeah. to keep that thing
3: steady.
1: I mean it really does, you know, sit just fine. Yep. Yeah. You wanna to try to keep it right in that In that front action screw area, if you can keep that balance point right in there when it's in its full dress, Mm -hmm. uh, optic, bipod, that's, to me, that's kind of the the ideal scenario of of how to set them up to where they they don't have a lot of change, no matter what position you're put in. Uh, They don't have a, a huge point of impact change. Yeah.
0: Run us, uh, run us through real quick too. So you know, right here at this range, we were just we broke in these guns before we went out and did a lot of shooting with them. We did a podcast before with Ian on barrel breaking, but I know there's there's different uh, there's different ways of doing it. Different people have different ways of doing mm-hmm. it, and actually, it seems as though the way that we did it here uh, works great. And I know that Ian, obviously, I'm not going to question Ian. I mean, he's like, you know, champion F-class shooter or whatever. So, obviously, his method works great. And I'm sure there's other methods out there that work great. But what, what was yours specifically? I, I we, we all commented on the fact how your machining process was meticulous and at times monotonous. And your break-in process was meticulous and at times monotonous. But you didn't send like 100 rounds down the barrel no. to break it in. He's, no. I think six? or something. Yeah, well, or 10 or
1: technically we was we was done at 5 really, yeah. but just everybody's got a little different outlook on that. You know, some people say brush the barrel, some people say don't brush the barrel. Some, you know, I try to go with the recommendation of barrel manufacturers to a point, but uh, the the old man that that I learned my break-in procedure from was just an old benchrest guy and he Wore out more barrels than I probably ever will in my life. So I, I listened to what he said. He had a reason behind everything that he did, and I just kind of started off with it. And I guess creature of habit, I just never ventured. It's never given me a reason. It's working. It Don't sound away. like it's broke. <laughs> yeah, so right. I, um, I, I, I've just pretty much stuck with that same regiment throughout all the years, I've, I've, I've is not it, ever...
0: Is it a secret sauce? Because I, I was very curious about some of the ingredients that
1: went into it. Do. I don't want to say it yeah. if it is a secret sauce. It's not a secret sauce. Because no. there was
0: Zippo lighter fluid, yep. WD-40, and uh, barrel <laughs> cleaning solvent. Yep. Yeah. Which but just, is like... Which is
1: shine. which they, there's, you know, Hoppies makes some good uh, bore cleaner, Bore Tech. You know, there's, there's goodles of good stuff out there. There really mm-hmm. is. It's just, once again, what he... What he recommended to me years and years ago was Butch's Borshine. I, I use it, non-aerosol non aerosol, non aerosol WD forty. I don't know why he said non aerosol. I'm not a chemist. I don't know what's in aerosol that's not in non aerosol. But he always told me non aerosol and, and Zippo lighter fluid. Zippo lighter fluid. That's that was his concept on it. Was that he he always he never wanted to push a dry patch down a barrel. Uh, he always wanted some sort of fluid on it. And he said that it had a slight amount of graphite in it. And he said that was always his final final bore or final polish was a a couple patches with just a light amount of zippo lighter fluid on it. That's what I've always done. It's always worked. It seems like he he, his theory was you never have to run a lot of foulers through it. You won't have to you won't have an off shot or throat shot because of a fouler. Man, I've shot thousands if not tens of thousands of of rounds you know testing a lot of theories of go clean a bore come out and shoot a group with it go straight into the group and you know maybe it's luck maybe his theory's right I don't know but I don't want to get too far away from it just in <laughs> case just in case it isn't luck so you know, yeah you know. it
2: is funny when you first told me that you know your process the zippo lighter fluid uh was one of those things I just kind of like Huh. But once I started doing that, that horrible thing that happens when you go to a match or something and you put that first round in the chamber and you shoot and you're like, why is my zero off? And then you start shooting a couple more and you're like, okay, never mind. It's good now. It
0: came back. I don't get that anymore.
2: <laughs> it, it's gone. And we're
0: and,
3: back. Yeah. And we're
2: back. Yeah. No, it's it's yeah. a really, it's an interesting thing that I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life, I'm sure now. Her, and that's
1: that's kind of the what when I started doing it, I, I seen – I didn't ever see a negative result from it. Right. Uh, if anything, I seen positive results. So I just kind of run with it. And every uh, every time I see the the man, still to this day, I, he that's one of the few things he ever asked me. Or one of the first things he ever asked me is, "You still clean them barrels like I taught you?" How? Yep, sure do. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> Awesome. And and you basically were taking we cleaned it first before we even shot because you want to make sure there weren't any burrs or anything like that from the machining process inside that would or,
1: be bad yeah any type of you know just residual uh, yeah you know residual left over from from um, acetone or brake clean or you know okay, any of right. that stuff we want to get we want a hundred percent clean bore before we ever start it and that so was yeah.
2: without a brush that was just running the patch down yeah, that
1: was that was running uh, uh, patches with lighter fluid on them just. Yeah. Taken, yep. taken, taking any yeah. type of dirt or anything that could have potentially got in it before we sent the first round. We don't want anything in there. Yep. And then we shot, cleaned, we literally shot
0: one shot, Yep. cleaned, shot another shot, cleaned, shot another shot, cleaned, and then we took a couple more shots, and then we determined pretty sure at that point she was good to go, right? Yep. Yep. And every time he pulled that patch out, especially after that first shot when we cleaned it, you were checking for no copper, right? Just carbon yeah.
1: from no type of, of metal whatsoever. You know, we yeah. all we want to see on it is, is just carbon. Yeah. That's it.
0: We did the same thing with yeah. my gun too, for those out there yeah. wondering if you need to do it only with gunsmith guns or whatever. We did the same thing with my gun as well.
1: It's a it's a good practice to follow, even even if you're going and buying a, a factory production rifle. It's it's really good to do that because the factory production rifles, I'm sure that they have a form of of lubricant, both internal and external on the barrel. Oh, yeah. Because they don't want them rusting up in storage, shipment, whatever. And then uh, you put them into a, a brick-and-mortar gun shop that maybe they set on the shelf for two months. And, well, you know what dust and oil does. So right. dust and oil is going to yep. collect dust both inside and outside the barrel. So it's always a good idea to clean before you ever start shooting a new rifle, it's always a good idea to, to push some patches through it and get it clean. Make sure you swab that chamber when you're done. Get all the residual out of the chamber. Yeah. And well, then I'm sure if
0: there's a bunch of dust and other stuff in there as that bullet passes through the barrel, it's probably just grinding it, it in. It, and... it
1: is. It'll either embed it or, you know, it could potentially cause an imperfection. Uh, depending on what, what the debris is, it could cause an imperfection. in the bore that you may see... For the rest of the life of the rifle, uh, you know, wow. not just a shot or two, Great. it it could create a problem that maybe lasts forever. Yeah, uh, it's 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 unknown. Well, but...
2: it's you know, it's funny you know, when we talk about ballistics and stuff. Um, you know, internal ballistics of your bore when you shoot, uh, when the bullet engages that rifling, that deformation of your bullet's affecting your BC. You know, if you had a small piece of metal shaving in your barrel, you shoot it, and that. Grinds down uh, down the barrel and deforms or ch- changes the dynamics of that barrel a little bit. It's going to also alter the BC of your bullet. I mean, it's just going to change how that bullet performs when it leaves the muzzle.
1: It absolutely mm. will. It, you know, any any imperfections on your bullets. I've seen a lot of stuff over the years, but I've seen people that you know put in the uh, a wrong neck bushing, and they have to pull their press handle. Hard enough to get the bullets to seat that they'll actually deform the bullet jacket. They'll put a ring around it that looks like a yep. donut, hmm. you know, because they've got so much neck tension. Well, that in itself is going to cause a horrible amount of air turbulence. Just oh, yeah. to, mm-hmm. so any of that stuff, if you're if you're loading your own ammo, any of that stuff that you can keep away from, you know, try not to 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 dent the tips up or. You know, try to keep everything as perfect and as similar from one shot to the other as you can. The, the more of those variables you can pull out, the more consistent it's going to be, and the more consistent you're going to be, more confidence you're going to have in your gun. And
2: One yeah. of the things that I really took from watching you do that with the, uh, making sure that you have the chamber clean, um, we had a guy in consumer sales, Josh, he had custom gun built, and every time he shot it, he was getting this dent in his cases. And we we're like, "What is causing this?" Is there something around the chamber? Trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Found out that one time it was cleaned, the chamber had not been cleaned out, and so he had a little bit of oil in the chamber. So as soon as he shot, that brass expands in the chamber, and that you, you can't really compress water or, or fluid hydraulic. the way. You, yep. So you had a hydraulic dent form in every cartridge. And once you figured that out, you just took a chamber mop in there, cleaned it out, and it yeah. was great, but it was a headache for so long because you couldn't figure out what was going on. You don't mess with hydraulics, man they
0: <laughs>
1: do, no matter how yeah. hard
0: you try <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah it's uh it's not going the, the the oil the residual is not going anywhere it's just going to have to conform to whatever yep. whatever you put against it so. and
2: you know brass being as malleable as it is it's going to take the form of whatever is in the chamber and and yeah. it did.
1: Yeah. We didn't
3: see any and this is probably pretty basic stuff, but you know, because you did everything properly, we didn't see any, you know, metal fouling on any of the patches. But how would if somebody was to look at one of those patches, what would they see if they were seeing that? If
1: they do see any type of uh metal or especially like the first couple shots, you know, if they start seeing that, there's there's definitely a, a problem uh somewhere. In, in the barrel At mm-hmm. that point, you know, it's a real good idea Just to stop and Take it to someone who has a bore scope uh, Scope the barrel See see where the problem is see if, okay. it, see if it lies in the throat See if there happens to be an imperfection somewhere Mid barrel or, or Whatever it is See what that is because More than likely if it's doing that Initially, it's not just Going to go away, more than likely Or it's going to have an adverse effect even if it doesn't do it anymore. So, at that point in time, it's probably a good idea just to have it borescoped and see if a person can pinpoint exactly what it is, you know. And if it is something that that truly went away, it doesn't hurt anything. Most people run a borescope in them for little of nothing. Um, So... It doesn't hurt anything to not have the peace of mind, if nothing else. Right. To say, Yeah, we looked in it and everything looks good and it shoots great now, so we're we're in good shape. But
0: Man. Well, it, this was this was super cool watching it all happen. Hopefully you guys go in and check out the uh, the videos. The one of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah building the rifle will be far cooler than the one of Nick and I building the <laughs> rifle. But hopefully, hopefully both are entertaining. I was going to say, one
3: might be more entertaining uh, than informational. Yeah. But I, you guys did a phenomenal job, though. I mean, that thing... It worked. It came <laughs> together. It, it works great, it came
0: together actually. And as we expected to, though, when we showed up and we talked to Isaiah about some stuff, we did realize there was a few things we would have done differently. The yeah. go-no-go gauge, we would have made it. Tried to uh, make it close much more nicely on that go gauge. I think there was even something else that I can't remember off the top of my head. Well, we, we did have
2: where we got her all put together, headspaced, and you're like, hey, what's this piece? And I said, that's a recoil log. And he said, when was that supposed to go on? I said, about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, stuff like that, I, yeah. that was obviously like just a real dumb mistake, but it's one of those things where experience goes a long way yeah um well, even, and even learning too about like
0: barrels can have a natural bend to them
2: and, and is that that was something actually i was kind of curious if you could add a little bit more to it. is that just the offset of where the bore is in compared to the outside diameter of the
1: no uh it's it's actually it, it runs deeper than that uh, some naturally some are worse than others yeah but they can have sort of a let's say uh, a loose string effect okay if you had a string hanging across the doorway and it was loose uh, that's a very exaggerated example sure mm-hmm. but the bore can can somewhat simulate that mm-hmm. and that is the bore it's not but, actually the barrel being like uh, bent. that's yeah. uh, it's, it's how just, the bore is it's just the bore okay so what we try to do when we was indicating in is use an indicating pin at the face of the barrel, and then we use an indicating pin off the face of the barrel, so we can find if any where that high and low is. Yeah, and then we mark because we want the the bullet to exit at the up, high point uh, uphill, if possible. That's where we want it, within a few degrees of that.
2: Which is something that me and Jim, the way we did ours, didn't really have a way to do that. And we no, just no, we turn the barrel in the into barrel our headspace, in. And then
1: we tighten down the nut at the at the time at the point. That you was there, it would be impossible almost because you're dealing with, uh, you know, uh, the difference between a go and a no-go gauge is probably six degrees. Yeah. So that barrel had already been threaded, so it it, was
0: going to go into the point it was going to go into. Yeah. Regardless, it's
1: almost unchangeable at that point. You, Mm you, that has to be done right off the get go with that barrel blank like we did mark that barrel blank and then get the action fitted to that that way we know where where it enters where it exits
2: which is just another example of the meticulous process and how that can pay off i mean in our case if that um that high point i think is how you refer to it of uh the bore if that was pointing left we may have had to use a, a little bit more windage mm-hmm. which we did have to use a, up a bit of we did. more windage yep. i'd say than mark did uh, or uh, siding in or if that was pointing down i mean we might not have as much elevation adjustment as we would theoretically like yeah. for long range shooting go with so a 20 MOA it base is right off the bat exactly yeah. yeah being able to have that that just that little bit of extra touch to make sure that everything lines up the way you want it to in the end was, was super cool to see you do yeah.
3: When all these, just these super precise things, they just, they add up, you know, yep. they stack and it's boom, boom, tolerance boom, 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 yeah. tolerance stacking. Yeah, and it's, it's pretty cool to see the final product, like what we have yeah. here today. Beautiful uh, rifle.
1: Once you, uh, the same way we was just talking about shooting, I mean, once you take any variable you can take out of the equation is one that you don't have to worry about. So if there's, you know... Does that take a lot of extra time? Not really. Uh, You know, if it takes another 15 minutes, so be it. The benefits for it are going to be for 4,000 rounds now of that barrel. Yeah, exactly. So what takes a little time here can go a long ways in the end, and eliminating that process, maybe one of these, maybe that particular rifle you wanted to put an optic on that doesn't have a super wide range of windage uh, uh, capability. So then you call and you say, hey, man, I'm almost zeroed, but I lack about three-tenths from being able to get it far enough right or left or, you know, or in the case of a long-range shooter, you know, most of us uh, have built-in or have rails that have 20 or 30 MOA Mm -hmm. in it. Well, if if you send the bullet leaving, going downwards, you've kind of canceled that back out to where you're almost back at that zero MOA, or, you know, right. depending on how exaggerated it is. When a lot of people forget, too, that the more windage you take up to get
0: zeroed, the less elevation you end up with left over afterwards because a scope tube is a circle. Yeah. So the further out towards the edge you get towards the circle, the less straight up and down you've got before you start hitting the edge.
2: Absolutely. That's something that we try to account for with some scope designs like a Gen 2 Razor where it travels. It's actually limited. Uh, to make sure that you only have that same travel depending on its
0: its windage.
2: Exactly, but if you take an older design optic, that's certainly something that you see more and more uh, or used to see a lot more. Um, The other thing that's important to note is that the further you get off in Optical Zero, the less resolution you're going to get. Your optical quality is going to suffer
1: by taking yourself further and far off. zero. zero. Yeah.
2: The center of the image.
1: you you really want to try to keep all of them I mean it's as close to center you know bore line everything always works better on center so one piece that by all stretch of imagination the the very first 308 that I ever built had absolutely none of that factored into it I had at that point in time I never never thought about it never it never got to the to that point until later in life when I'm you know, trying to figure out some of the little quirks that you could uncover to help out in the end. And I think pretty much everybody that does a job day in and day out will find better ways or more efficient ways or something to refine, a way to refine something. And and that's just simply what it is. But it really doesn't take a whole lot of time to to do that, to make it all work. So that's why we. Cool. Well, I
3: can, I can say this. You can't, you can't appreciate the good unless you've experienced the bad, and I've shot a handful of crummy rifles over the years. The and I can tell you this, Isaiah,
0: I appreciate the heck out of this rifle. <laughs> glad, yes. to do, glad to do it for you. I'm the same really? way. I'm just happy that I can actually sled. Lo- you, I don't even have the nice one. <laughs> I have, I have the, I have the just shy of super Gucci nice one. Uh, and i can i can at least sled load the dang thing and i'm happy as can be i don't i didn't leave today it's the with, little things
1: in life Joe, with bloody fingers from having a, yeah. it may not be a lamborghini but you got a pretty respectable camaro there so <laughs> you know. oh yeah i think
2: you shot what about an inch group at 500 yards of the, the yeah, day inch, i mean, inch and a half yeah, yeah you can't complain about yeah, that. mark
0: do. mark was at mark was at an inch at, at 500 i think i was at an inch and a half so <laughs> yeah it's, I did beat him they, in the twenty two rim fire. You did. Yeah. Lest we forget. Yeah. But I
3: cleared the long distance little uh you diamond did. plate rack, yeah.
0: You know what? We'll play this game off air. Okay.
3: Uh, well, that's, I just I have
1: to defend myself. That's right. right. I don't know why you guys waited to have him shoot against me. Couldn't I shoot up against somebody that was gonna drop a shot? <laughs> you guys throw me down there and then yeah, I can't can't even win on my own range. <laughs> It's brutal, man. It is. Super fun day, guys. Yes. It was. It's, yeah. been, it's been a really good couple days. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us yes, out. thank uh, you.
0: Thanks for all your help as well. And, uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, for those of you who are curious about this and want to learn more, definitely check it out. We have Curtis Custom Weapons CCW. So, uh, yeah, thank yeah. you again. And if you, you don't want to
3: figure it out, just send it over here. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> you know, that's right. That's it. That's
0: how it works. Cool. Cool. All right. So uh, there will probably be more coming from this pod venture. Stay tuned. Let us know what you think about custom guns and stuff. So, yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at vortex nation podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen. If we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.